0: Hey, before we begin today, we've got a testimony for you. Um, we just like to highlight when God's at work in our congregation and some of the stories that God is is moving in. And so I'm going to ask my friend Ron to come on up. And Ron's got a story to share and how God was working in his uh, situation. And we really want to hear how, hopefully, it'll encourage you. So here you go, Ron.
1: Thank you, sir. Good morning. I know I've probably said that to all of you already once today. <laughs> um, but uh, when Pastor Steve and Pastor... Uh, Glenn asked me to speak. One of the first things they said to me is they want me to be brief. Well, if any of you know me, brief is not really part of my makeup. Buckle up. <laughs> Can I get an amen here? <laughs> Anyhow, um, what, I'm, what I want to talk to you today is about the health issue in my life that started last September, and up until recently, I was dealing with it. Last September, uh, I had a kidney stone attack on my way to Oregon. I spent seven hours in the Reading emergency room. Not something I would recommend for going to reason to go to Reading. <laughs> Anyhow, so after seven hours, I uh, came home instead of going on up because it had been two in the morning. So, but the doctor, they did a CAT scan. The doctor told me I only had one, and I passed it, and so we went on with life. Well, and I'd had previous cat, uh, kidney stones, so I knew that that's probably what was happening. Well, about a month later, I started getting a little bit of a pain again, and I just thought it's a small stone. Um, it lasted a short time and then went away, and this continued on, and, but each time the pain came a little sooner between pains until March of this last year, and in March, all of a sudden, the pain came and it stayed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I figured, well, Dr. Ron's probably not as smart as he, is, he should be, so I went to a real doctor. <laughs> yeah, what can I say? The doctor um, did a CAT scan, and the results came back that I had a, a partial blockage in my right urinary tract. It wasn't completely blocked, but it was there, and it needed to, be, need to come out. So they scheduled surgery. Well, five days prior to that surgery, a Friday night, uh, I went to bed feeling fine. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I felt like somebody was hitting me in the ribcage. It turned out that I had a gallstone. My wife took me in. The, the young lady doing the sonograms, doing the thing, and looking at it, and you know you got a problem when she 's going mm, yeah, look at that. I thought she was going to sell tickets to the nurses traveling by, <laughs> you know, and it turned out I did they did emergency gallbladder surgery, but a few but just four days later, I was supposed to have the urinary procedure, so the doctor said we can 't do that we 're going to oh and they and they did it. <clears throat> We're gonna, they did a second CAT scan, or excuse me, I of myself there. So there, four days later, I was supposed to have the second surgery procedure, and they, didn't, they couldn't do it because it was too swollen. So the doctor said, you know, we'll put a stent in, and we'll give you medicine, and we'll do it in two weeks. Well, the f- next Friday after that, I was back in emergency again because I was passing blood this time, which is no fun. Anyhow, so I go in for the second procedure, and they still can't do it. So uh, they said, well, we're going to give you two more weeks, and uh, we'll come, uh, you'll come back and have, have you, we'll check it then, or do, have you do it then. Well, I was getting ready to go on vacation five days later. So we're, my wife and I and family were going to go to Hawaii. So I'm walking out the door after that second procedure. The doctor looks at me and says, oh, by the way, it's highly likely that that polyp is cancerous. Great, I'm going on vacation to Hawaii, and you're telling me i got to deal with cancer, okay? So this is man looking at it, and I'll get into where God comes in here. And so we're in Hawaii, and my family, I called my family, and we we're they're all praying. And my wife asked me if I was going to call my friends. And I said, no, nah, they got enough problems in their own life. They don't need to take on any of mine. That's fine. And if, a day or so later, uh, when I was thinking about it again, she asked me again. And I said, no, they they, they have enough. I said, what do you think? And she looks at me and goes, wouldn't you like to know if one of your friends was going through this? And I said, yeah, I would. And she said, well, then don't you think they would? Okay, you got a point. My wife's back here listening, I'm sure she's smiling. And uh, so I did, I started making calls to my friends. And one of the friends I called was Lino Cruz. I don't know if you remember Lino from attending church here. But he has a prayer chain that he sends out. And I'm sure that some of you are on it. And you probably got it and wondered what Ron you were praying for. Well, that was me. And so prayers went out for the next uh, week and a half. And they really worked. They made me feel more comfortable not knowing, you know, with the unknown. Because your mind always goes to the bad side of things. So uh, when we come home from Hawaii. Oh, by the way, I had people praying for me from Hawaii. Texas, Arizona, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, all over the country were praying for me. And they really did help. So we get home late on a, a night, Monday night, 15 hours or about 24 hours later, I'm back in the hospital for the, for the procedure this time. And go in, they come out. The emergency room nurse, or excuse me, the recovery room nurse, what an angel she was, she took care of me and then got me up to my back up to my room, but she stayed with me. She didn't turn me over to the nurses on the floor. And a few minutes later, the doctor comes in, and he looks at us. He goes, I'm in a conundrum. And my wife goes, oh, that's good. Now, how many of us want to look at our doctor when he tells us he doesn't know what's going on? I'm going, yeah, that's a good thing to happen. You know? So he goes, you had no mass when I got in there. He says, I went all the way to your kidney, and couldn't find a mass. Nothing. He, he then he then showed me pictures of that. Which is something you really want to see later in a hospital bed. Uh, he showed me pictures of, of my urinary tract. And he said, you see that little spot right there? That red spot? And I said, yeah. He said, that little bump? And I said, yeah. He said, that's where the mass was. He says, but it's not there. And he says, those those were most likely caused by the stent we put in. Nothing. That, he says, He says, I don't have an explanation for this. He says, why don't you come back next week, next Monday, to the office. I'm going to talk to my colleagues, and then I'm going to, uh, and we'll talk about what the next steps are. So the following week, Monday, we go in, and he looks at me, and he goes, I got no answers. He says, none of my colleagues have ever seen this before. I've never seen it disappear. I have no idea. We said, well, Doc, we have an answer for you. And she goes, what's that? He says, I believe in the power of prayer. And he said, so do I. And he says, there's, just, there's no logical explanation for that, for that mass to be gone. So I, he, he said, if you don't run into any more pain uh, between now and August, come back in August, and we'll give you another CAT scan to, see, to take a look in there, and I think I should get a multiple CAT scan discount. This will be my third one. <laughs> Anyhow, so I look back on it, and I go, God, man told me about going to, I was going to Hawaii, and he told me I had this cancer. But if God hadn't prompted my doctor to do that, I wouldn't have asked for prayer. I would have just went on with life, and when when I went in for the surgery, the mass would—I still believe the mass would have been there. The doctor gave God prompted the doctor to do that so that we would pray, so God could honor His word to answer the prayers of, of the people. I will tell you, I am nothing special. I am nobody special to anybody. Uh, uh, in God's eyes. I'm no different than anybody else sitting out here. I put on my pants one leg at a time. I try to serve God. Some days I do, some days I don't. It's just the way it is. But in his infinite wisdom, he chose to honor our prayers. And all I can say is, thank you, Lord. My family says thank you. And I thank all the people out there that prayed for me. And I hope what I've said today will encourage you in your faith. Thank you very much. Amen.
0: My favorite part of that story is he just he didn't want to ask for prayer. He had to be talked into asking for prayer and, and and yet he was willing to pray for anybody that would come his way. And so I mean really if you don't take anything away from that don't don't hesitate to ask for prayer. Like let God's people pray, you know what I mean? Let it happen. So hey, this morning we are jumping back into Romans chapter 10 and we are going to start with talking about feet. How many people have beautiful feet out there? Let me see by a show of hands. Really lovely feet. Anyone? Ladies, your feet don't count. We know you work on your feet. You got your toes did. You get the glitter nail polish. You got the the thing. Father's Day. How many men? Men. How many men got good feet? Good looking feet? Manly feet. Nobody? Nobody. All right. Well, then I guess the only way to do this is to show you my feet. All right? So this is how it works here. I don't know if anybody else thinks this, but how many people think feet are gross? Yeah, I get it. how many people are dry heaving a little bit right now? Right? I have terrible feet. Let me tell you about these feet. Ready? Oh, you're doing the close up. Good for you. Thank you. Let me tell you about this. my wife hates my feet. This is an ongoing battle in our marriage. Look at her. She's nodding. Yeah. Let me tell you about my feet. Uh, my feet the heels of my feet if I don't wear shoes and socks 24 7 the heels of my feet crack and bleed anybody else have this no just me suffering alone oh good there we go so I have to wear shoes and socks 24 7 or else they crack and bleed it's nasty Uh, I have a toenail that doesn't grow out it grows straight up anybody else have this I had a toe surgery one time and ever since then I got a toenail, it's on this foot. It grows straight up. If I don't trim it down, it ends up being like a knife blade. Does that make sense? Anybody else while you're in bed with your spouse, your foot kind of wanders over? I can slice her leg or I can grind it with the rough heel of my foot. Am I the only one that struggles with this stuff? My wife says I should put lotion on my feet. No disgusting i don't want to put lotion on my feet and then put she's like well just put some vaseline on your i'm not putting vaseline on my feet and let them slide around in my shoes all day long i'm not doing it can can i get an amen out of anyone the big toe on this foot has been bruised it was i was hiking and and i was pounding on the top of my foot as i was coming downhill it's bruised when it gets black and blue under a toenail it stays forever do you notice that i have ugly feet I have ugly feet do we all agree yes okay great well um I have ugly feet luckily I've slip on shoes so I can put them back on and my sock yeah we'll just get rid of that okay (laughs) also if we could keep this between you and I Tiffany doesn't need to know I used her chair all right (laughs) because she's coming back for a final song so uh there we go um I I will tell you this that uh Guys, we, men make fun of things that women do. We just make fun of things that women do until we try them. And then when we try them, we're like, wow. Anybody anybody here ever had a pedicure? My wife made me go get a pedicure. Where are the men that had pedicure? No men? Yeah, right now? Men me, there you go. Thank you. Look at that. And, and the funny thing is, is guys will be like, whatever, dude, you got a pedicure, whatever. That's so lame, you got a pedicure. Let me tell you something. Go get a pedicure magical it's it's magical like there is nothing more manly than getting a pedicure can I just let me let me tell you this ladies back me up on this when you go to get a pedicure first they seat you in a throne am I right they see you in a throne with, like, massaging rollers on your back. You're like, oh, yeah. And then you put your feet forward, and a, and a woman sitting beneath you starts to massage your feet, and you're looking down. And honestly, it's as close as you can get to, like, being a pharaoh as anything else. You are one step short of going, more grapes, please, more grapes. Bring me the grapes. That's what it's like. And, and the funny thing about it is, is that, you know... Uh, we're going to talk about beautiful feet today and I just want to paint you a picture of it. In Romans chapter 10 there are a few key famous verses. Verses that many of you have heard. And one of them is a verse that describes beautiful feet. So I want us to look at beautiful feet this morning. Who are these people and let's dive in and see. So if you've got your notes jump in with me. Uh, Glenn last week talked about Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is a difficult chapter there's no doubt about it. And I know I shouldn't have to say this, but let me just kind of wind it up for you. Romans 9 follows Romans 8. And Romans 10 follows Romans 9. Now, this letter, when it was written, was a letter. Like, we added verse and chapter and all these delineations and markings much, much later. At the time, it would have been read as a letter, probably all in one sitting. And Romans 8 is about the security we have in Christ. We have this security in our salvation once we have trusted Jesus Christ. There are verses in Romans chapter 8 that say things like, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we're like, yes, yes. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight. it says, God causes everything to work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we're like, yes, right on. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, Romans chapter 8. Um, and at the end of Romans chapter 8, it says, nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Not, not uh, death or life, angels or demons, not anything can separate us from God's love. Um, and we go, yes, yes, that's good stuff, right? And then he turns the corner to Romans chapter 9. Last week, Glenn talked about this. And Romans chapter 9 is all about God's sovereignty in salvation. Now... Sovereignty, if you're just sort of new to church or whatever, is a big, fancy, churchy word for God is the supreme authority. Like God's God, God gets to be God, you don't get to be God. Does that make sense? He's in charge. And so he talked about God's sovereignty, and it was really about God's role in salvation. Like the work that God does, the, the, the sovereignty of God in salvation. Romans 10, which we're going to look at today, is the other side of the coin. It talks a little bit about our role in the salvation process and what it looks like. And so we're gonna jump right in this morning and the first thing that I wanna talk about is our heart for our people. Our heart for our people. And so we're gonna read along with me. I I don't like to preach alone, you gotta preach with me. Trying something new, we got highlighted words up there. You know the words you're supposed to say because they're highlighted up on the screen and in your notes, so preach along with me here. Dear brothers and sisters, what? The longing of my heart, Paul says, and my prayer to God is for who? The people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with themselves. What do they say? They cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. It's all about the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Now the first thing I notice in this passage is is this is Paul talking about his people. He's longing for his people. The, The Jews were his people. He knew them. He desperately wanted these people to be saved. Paul is described in scripture as a real Hebrew among, uh, if ever there was one, a Hebrew among Hebrews. He was was a real Jew, man. And and these were his people. He wanted, but they weren't coming to Jesus. And he was desperate for them to come to Jesus because they were relying on this Old Testament law that they had been given and they were rejecting faith in Jesus as, as the way of their salvation. Now, I want you to remember because the people of Israel, the Jews were not just Paul's people. These were Jesus' people too. Like Jesus' people, they were his people. And they rejected him as well. Listen to what it says in Matthew 23, 37. It says, Jesus is talking, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. That's not a good start. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But what? You wouldn't let me. You wouldn't let me. Listen to John chapter 1. It says this. He came to his own people, and even they, what? They rejected him. So Paul and Jesus, these are, their, these are his people. These are my people. These are our people, the Jewish people. And they were, he was, Paul was desperate for them to be saved. And Romans is clear. There's only one way to be saved. It's faith in Jesus Christ, placing your trust in Jesus Christ. So here's the point as I look at it and kind of walk away from it. Everyone has a burden for someone. Everyone has a burden for someone in their life. Let me ask you, who do you have a burden for? Like it's already built into you. You have a burden for these people. Is it a people group? Is it an ethnic group? Is it a group that you grew up in and your ethnicity is a part of who you are and you really have a burden for that ethnicity? Is it for um, immigrants? Is it for LGBT? Is it for business people? Do you have a burden for maybe addicts or athletes or I don't know who else? It could be military people or or first responders. But when I mention them, you immediately go, oh man, like I really care about those people. Small children, uh, youth. It could be a generation, right? You, you just really care about elderly people and you have a heart for them. You, you care about young people, really young children and, and maybe youth and teenagers. It may be a generation, boomers or busters or Gen X or Gen Y or Gen Z and you just, you have a burden for that generation. Maybe it's for a people group that just you're willing to go to bat for them like young mothers. I want to tell you a story about a guy by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis. Igna, I'm going to call him Iggy because Ignaz is weird. Iggy here was uh, the father. He, he, uh, he practiced medicine in the 1800s. And he was a Hungarian physician. And he was known as an early pioneer in antiseptic practices. And he's known as the savior of mothers. In fact, in 1938 they made a movie about him that won an Academy Award called That Mothers Might Live. When Iggy was growing up, uh, he was born into a world with dying women. In his day, get this, one in six mothers died during childbirth. One in six. Think about those odds. One in six died during childbirth. And it led him to want to go into medicine. And so he became a physician, and they were dying of something called childbed fever. Uh, They were dying of childbed fever And he started to study this And what he realized was And now we would think this is ridiculous But back then they just didn't know When physicians would come on to their shift They would immediately go and do autopsies first So they would go to the morgue Do autopsies on dead, decaying bodies And then they would immediately go to the maternity ward To deal with mothers who were getting ready to give birth Okay, And so he would do that he, uh, and they were, they were killing mothers at an unprecedented rate. So he started an experiment with washing his hands. He washed his hands in a chlorine solution every day in between meeting with patients. And get this, for him, the maternal rate dropped from 1 in 6 dead to 1 in 50. 1 in 50 people. And he was passionate about this issue and passionate about these young women he finally spoke to his colleagues at a convention because his colleagues were like yeah we don't think so they didn't know about germs and bacteria yet at this point they just didn't understand it he came to them in a convention and said this fever is caused by decomposed material conveying to a wound I have shown you how it could be prevented I have proven all I have said but while we talk 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 gentlemen women are dying I'm not asking you to do anything world-shaking. I'm asking you only to wash. For God's sakes, wash your hands. And get this, they laughed at him. They didn't change their practices, and he actually died insane at the age of 47 with the death rattle of a 1,000 women in his ears. He had a burden for these women, and he was willing to do anything to make it better for them. These women would never get a chance to be mothers to these children. And he, it, drove him, it drove him his whole career, and it drove him to his death, honestly. Let me ask you a question. Who do you have a heart for? Who do you think to yourself, man, someone has got to reach them. Someone has got to do something. Someone has got to help them. Someone has got to save them. Who are your people? Who are the people that you have a burden for? Because God has a role in salvation, but so do we. And God's already put certain people on our hearts to reach out to and, to and to play a role in the salvation of those people. Now, we also have a role to play in our own salvation. It's our role in our salvation. And we see that here in the middle of chapter 10. It says this, starting in verse 5. It says, For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands that's how the law does it but faith's way of getting right with God says don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again anybody else lost look at your neighbor and say huh what's he talking about Is anybody else am I the only one that gets like that when I'm reading the Bible like, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm like, I don't even know what he's talking about anymore. Anybody else? No? I'm the only one? Thanks. I get paid for this. Great. Uh, I, I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking, I'm confused. Like, I don't even know what he's talking about here. And I did some research and looked at some various people and what they thought about it. None of it really made great sense to me. What, what he's referring to here in this back to life again and, and all of that is, a, is actually from Deuteronomy. And he's kind of taken a, like a Jesus spin on an old saying in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's like a twist for Jesus. But none of it made too much sense to me. I think the only way I made any sense of it at all was this, is that, I, I, first of all, it may just be Paul smarter than me, possible, uh, but, but the only way that it made any sense to me at all is this, is that Jesus provided for our salvation first by becoming a man and then by being raised from the dead. That's how he provided for our salvation. But this next verse is what really grabs my attention. It says the message is very close at hand. It is what? It's on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. And Romans 10, 9 is one of those verses. If you don't know it, you should know it. You should probably have it memorized. It's one of those verses. It says, if you what? If you, it's not up on the screen, I'm, I apologize. If you what? And what else? What happens? You will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, What? Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. And Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For who? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. It talks about on your lips and in your heart. Now, I think some people get confused with this. They think to themselves, uh, these are two separate things, like part one and part two, like I I have to believe in my heart, and then then say it on my lips, and it's part one and part two, or it's like a two-step authentication, how many people know about this on your devices, right, you go to a website, you put in your password, and then it sends something to your phone, and you get the code, and you have to put the code in, and if you don't put the code in, if you don't have the password and the code, then you don't get logged in, no soup for you, nothing, you can't get in, right, you need two steps, it's not exactly like that, the way that I think about it is, I think Some people think Paul is saying, well, first you have to believe in your heart, and then you have to confess verbally, and then you can be saved. Listen, Paul's been clear all along. All you have to do to be saved is to trust in Jesus. Place your trust in Jesus. When you... Take your trust off of your own deeds, your own actions, your own ability to keep the law. And you say, I'm going to give it to you, Jesus. I trust in you. And here's the, he, That's what it does. We put it into that thing. I think what he's saying here is when he's saying it, he's just saying the same thing in two different ways. Let me give you an example. When you get married, you walk down the aisle and the pastor says to you, do you, do you? And you say what? I do. As a part of that ceremony, though, you also exchange rings right are those two separate things are they are they different from each other or do they both point to the same moment where you became married does that make sense to you like you became married in that moment and so that's what it's like i think i really think he says this and i think it's very natural for us because when you genuinely believe something in your heart you tend to talk about it am i right when you, i mean ask any vegan You know what I'm talking about? If somebody's a vegan, they're gonna tell you about it. You don't have to ask. Like they'll be, let me tell you why. Or or somebody who does CrossFit. Can I get an Amen? Out of anybody who knows anybody who does CrossFit. They're like, let me show you how healthy I am. I'm like, great, you're healthy, you're blocking the Krispy Kremes. Can you get out of the way? Like, (laughs) like that's what I need here. Uh, that's the that's the way it is. The point of this whole passage is not one step, two step. It, the point of the passage for me is that we have a responsibility on our own salvation. We still have to believe. We have to place our trust in Jesus Christ. We have to take salvation out of our hands, out of the hands of 613 Old Testament laws, and put it onto Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. That's what we do. We respond, in, 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 that's our part. That's what we do. Only he can save us, but we have to do that part. And this brings up what I'll call attention. There's this tension between God's role in salvation and our role in salvation, right? Romans chapter 9 kind of talks about this. It says that God is God and God chooses people for salvation. Verse 16, it says it like this. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Huh. In verse 18 in chapter 9, it says, So you see, God chose to show mercy to some... And he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. And you say, huh. And there are some Christians that will say, see, 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 see what it says. Look at these verses. See what it says. It says we have no role in salvation. It's all God. It's all God. It's all God. I get that. But then you have to look at verse 11 that says anyone. And verse 13 that says everyone who calls. Like anyone and everyone who calls on God. God has a role to play. There's no doubt about it but we also have a role to play in our own salvation. Here's the point that I want you to see. Salvation is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. If you can hear my voice right now, salvation is available to you. Some people think, I think some people think salvation is complicated. It's not. It's easy. It's really easy. If you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and you confess with your mouth because you just naturally say it when you believe it in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It's that simple, like it's Romans ten nine for the win. It's like, bingo, you got it, that's it. That's what we need to understand. Um, the question that has messed with my mind for years is this question, and it's about God's role in salvation. Here's the question. Does God, in his heart of hearts, want everyone to be saved? Does God in his heart of hearts want everyone to be saved? Because the underlying question of God's sovereignty is this, and it's brutal. If God chose who will be saved, then that means God somehow chose some people to be excluded from being saved. And I wrestle with that. Does God in his heart of hearts want every person to be saved? Well, listen to 2 Peter 3, 9. It says this. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want, who? Anyone to be destroyed, but he wants, who? Everyone to repent. I sometimes wonder, do you wonder why it's taken Jesus 2,000 years to return? Like, it's been 2,000 years, Jesus. Like, what are you waiting for? Like, come on back. Now, I'm not going to tell you this is gospel truth. I'm just telling you this is Steve hypothesizing. I may very well be wrong. But I sort of wonder in my heart and in my head, if every single time somebody takes a step towards faith in Jesus, if God doesn't look down and go, ooh, not yet, not yet, not yet. Like, they're so close. Like, we just need a little more time. Like, he's being patient because if, 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 we, if they just had a little bit more time, maybe they're going to, in free will, make that choice to, to believe in their heart. I don't know the answer for sure, but I can tell you that Jesus someday is going to return it's true in the meantime people are going to die either through natural causes or unnatural causes it's going to happen and it is so important that we reach lost people with the gospel because that's true we have got to reach those lost people and so I want you to see that we have a role to play in other people's salvation we have a role in other people's salvation. We're going to blaze through the rest of this chapter here, starting in verse 14. Stick with me and responsive reading right along. But how can they call on him to save them unless they, what? Believe in him. And how can they believe in him if they have, what? Never heard about him. And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without, what? Being sent. That is why the scriptures say, say it with me now, how beautiful are those feet? But, who? Not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message, so what? Faith comes from hearing. That is, hearing the good news about Christ. But I ask, Have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me I showed myself to those who were not asking for me but regarding Israel God said all day long I opened my arms to them but they were disobedient and rebellious Israel has no excuse the Jews have no excuse Paul lists all these Old Testament references the last part of that are all these Old Testament references about Israel these were his people and they need Jesus and they need to hear the good news about Jesus and we all have a role to play in other people's salvation. Someone has to tell them and someone has to be sent and how will they ever know if no one tells them and how will anyone tell them if they're never sent and Paul has this burden for the Jews, for these people and he has a role to play in the salvation of the Jews. He's, he, that's why he's writing these letters. Ironically Paul would be the guy that gets sent to those Gentiles. That's the real dynamic role he will play as the first missionary for Christ, and he will do that. Um, I want you to understand this point. We are sent to tell everyone. We're sent to tell everyone. Not everyone will respond. Not everyone will respond. Israel has no excuse. They still didn't respond. Get this. Think about this. The Jewish people, they had all the prophecies of the Old Testament. They had the the scriptures at the time from God, revealed from God. They had Jesus himself teaching in their synagogues. Jesus, standing up, teaching in their synagogues, right? They saw Jesus healing people, performing miracles right in that area, right? They saw all this. And you know how they responded still? Crucify him. Crucify him crucify, not everyone's going to respond, but we have to tell them, and we have to be sent to them, which leads me to, so what Steve, what does this mean for me, well, so what are beautiful feet, should I take off my shoes again, or just leave them on, yeah, we'll leave them on, good idea, what are beautiful feet, and how do we get beautiful feet, I want to tell you a story about a, uh, a, a dog sled race, how many people know about the Iditarod dog sled race in, in Alaska? I don't know if you know the story behind the race the story behind the race is it started a long time ago but the original race was a run to save lives the original race was in January of 1925 a six year old boy in Nome, Alaska came down with symptoms of diphtheria and it looked like it could be an outbreak of diphtheria In this little town of Nome. And when the boy passed away a day later, the doctor, Dr. Curtis Welch there, began immunizing children with this experimental serum that was anti diphtheria serum. And it wasn't long before he ran out of this this serum. And the nearest serum was in a place called Nanania, Alaska. 674 frozen miles away from Nome, Alaska. And so this group of trappers and and prospectors, they volunteered to cover the distance with their dog teams. And so they set out, one sled set out from Nome, Alaska, and one set out from Nanonava, and they were coming, racing. The one from Nanonava had the serum and was racing towards Nome, and the people from Nome were racing to get the serum, and then they would turn back and and run the serum back to Nome, Alaska. They fought through frostbite and fatigue And exhaustion. And they mushed these dogs relentlessly. And after 127 hours, 127 hours in minus 50 degree winds, the serum was delivered to Nome, Alaska. And because of that race, only one other life was lost to diphtheria in that thing. And it it stopped this potential epidemic. Their sacrifice saved an entire town, gave them a gift of life. Beautiful feet look like ice covered boots that are delivering a life saving serum to people that can't save themselves. Beautiful feet look like rubber boots covered in fish guts on a fishing vessel that is pulling someone out of the ocean that's been bobbing on a life vest for maybe days or weeks. Beautiful feet are boots that are covered in soot as a firefighter goes to the second floor of a house and grabs a young child and pulls him to his chest and runs him outside to safety. Beautiful feet are people who go after people who cannot save themselves. Beautiful feet aren't pedicured feet. They're the feet of those who come to save someone who can't save themselves. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 9. He said to his disciples, what did he say? The harvest is great, great, but what? The The workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to what? Send more workers into his field. Here is the point I want to make to you today. You got to get your feet dirty. You got to get your feet dirty. Beautiful feet are dirty feet. Workers who work in the field have dirty feet. And we need to, too. I'm going to give you the aha moment for me. It happened this last week. This last week, I was on vacation with my family. Uh, went with my, my family and my brother-in-law's family and some other people. We went up to a cabin in Idaho, big house that we rented there. And I spent the week with 11 20-something-year-olds. 11 people. There was 11 of them in this house at one time, at, at, all week long. And all week long we spent time, we, we gathered at night and we played games together, all 11 of us. There was, there was my kids and, and my nieces and nephews and a cousin that has a couple of kids and there were some boyfriends and girlfriends and some guy that wandered in. No, I'm kidding. But uh, there was a lot of these 20-somethings around all week long. And we filled the living room, we played games, we played beach volleyball, we hiked, we ate together, we, we went in the hot tub together, we, uh, we went boating together. We went four-wheel driving together. And for one week, I was immersed in Gen Z. I was immersed in Gen Z. And there was a moment where we were talking about family. And as I looked across this room of all these kids, we were talking about family, and it dawned on me that really, I was the only uncle my nieces and nephew had. Just because of the way family and stuff worked out, I was the only one playing that uncle role in their lives. And then it dawned on me, my brother-in-law is the only uncle my kids have. And in that moment, I felt this immense sense of responsibility for this group and for this generation. God sent me to them. God sent me To them. And I am going to do everything I can to make sure I spend eternity with those kids. I have a role to play in their salvation. Listen to me. Fathers, if you are here today, God sent you to your kids. I don't care how old they are or how young they are. God sent you to your kids and you have a role to play in their lives and in the lives of their friends and in the lives of the kids that they're on their athletic team. God sent you to those kids. He sent you. Teachers, he sent you to those students that come to your classroom every day. He sent you. Managers, he sent you to those people who are your direct, directly report to you. He sent you to those people. Boomers, he sent you to busters, right? Busters, he sent you to millennials. Gen X, he sent you to Gen Z. Gen Y, love you. I'm not sure how it works out. Uh, busters to millennials, so Gen Y. That's, that's how it works. He sent us to each other because they are so valuable in God's eyes. And how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to lost people. I don't know who God sent you to. You already have a heart for him. You already know. God should be impressing upon it on your heart right now. But God sent you. Would you pray with me? Father God, I am so thankful for the responsibility of the people that you sent me to. Not because I think I'm equal to the task, God, but because I think how much I love those people, God. And as I think about the the Gen Z kids that you have sent me to, I love that generation because that is my kids' generation, and I want to see so many of them saved and walk in the streets of heaven with me, God. I love those kids by name. And God, I know that there are people out there right now who are thinking of someone that they know they're sent to, God. I pray that you would give them the opportunity and that you would give them the boldness to speak up, to tell them, and to be sent to them, God. May we not sit on our salvation. Say it's all up to you, God. We know you are sovereign, but we play a role. And God, they have free will. And I pray, God, that you would use us, that more and more people might be saved from a place where they can't save themselves. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen.